good to, to be together, a few of us here, it's good to be together again this morning. Um, so good, even, even in limited numbers, and those of you that are uh, online, uh, we, we welcome you as well. It's good to have you with us virtually. So this, this is the, the fourth message in our I Am series that we've been uh, doing, looking at the seven specific claims that Jesus makes uh, in John's Gospel of uh, where he says, I am, and then he makes a bunch of different claims. And, and we've been going through these claims out of a desire that in these days, specifically, we would be seeing Jesus for all that he is. And, and today, we, we come to a claim that is um, equally, and, and given the events around the claim that we're going to look at, um, as staggering as any of the claims that Jesus makes. It, it, is, it is simply an astonishing claim um, to work through. And, and a claim that may, many may, we may be familiar with, and if you're not, um, I, I hope that you're blown away. If, you've, if, you, if you're listening and you've never heard this, and you're like, wow, I, I, I do. I pray that you're blown away by the enormity of what this means. And that is, the claim is, I am the resurrection and the life that Jesus says. And Jesus, he's, he's, sort of, he's progressively been revealing himself in John's gospel as we get up to this point that we're, where we're going to be in John 11. And, he, and he's been revealing himself progressively to individuals, to, to groups, to his disciples, speaking him, of himself as the source of life both spiritually and physically, and we've been, we've been going through and looking at some of those claims. And now, he claims to be the very definition of life. And, and again, like, when, you, when you look at this and you begin to think about this, you're like, this is just total, again, hubris, like arrogance, or it's staggering truth. There really is no in-between. It's not like, oh, that's a nice little saying. It's like, Pardon? What do you say? And so we, we've got to work this out. Now, again, and this is, I, I love this about John's gospel. When we go through these claims, there is so much background and context around what Jesus is saying. It's not just pulling this statement out and going, and then it's that like we need to understand what's going on around these claims. It's so, so significant. So here, uh, leading up to this claim, Jesus, he's drawn, uh, withdrawn across the Jordan River, it tells us. Uh, and that, that was about a day's journey uh, from Jerusalem. After, and it was after an altercation with religious leaders in Jerusalem. After he had healed the blind man that we looked at. Um, and, and then he talks about being the good shepherd. And he has this altercation with the leaders. And it says in the, in the text that they tried to seize him, but Jesus escaped their grasp. It also says that many people were coming to Jesus where he was. We don't know exactly where he was, somewhere in the Transjordan area. But many were coming to him and believing in him. We also know Jesus, he's preparing to go back to Jerusalem for the Passover and ultimately his arrest and his crucifixion. And, and, so, and, and we see also in the text that the plans to arrest and kill Jesus are beginning to be laid by the leaders. There, there had been a, sort of a, a ramping up of stuff with Jesus, and now the leaders were beginning to really put into full force what they wanted to do. So you can imagine it's a tense and unnerving time. 
for Jesus and for his disciples. I mean, there's a lot going on. There's a lot percolating around them. And then this really tragic and unexpected event happens, at least from what we know. And that is Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, a very close friend to Jesus, dies. And, and this presents a really dangerous situation for Jesus. Bethany, where he died, is only two miles from Jerusalem, and Jesus had withdrawn from the area. And so, we also, we see this throughout the Gospels, right, where Jesus, he speaks of following the will of his Father in heaven, waiting for his timing and purposes. And again, the, you know, the whole plans being laid by the religious leaders to arrest Jesus, I mean, we all know that this was all according to the will of the Father, and Jesus himself knew he was submitting to it. But this, what is going on with Lazarus, was a tragic situation. In fact, the disciples, they didn't want to go back. When Jesus says, okay, we're going to go back, they're like, but Jesus, like they, they tried to stone you. Like, we don't want to go back. And so that's, that's the part that we come to here. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles. I'm not going to have it on the screen because, uh, again, we're reading actually a, a fair bit of the text. We need to for context. And so I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible at home, get it out. If you've got it on your phone, get it out and let's, let's read together. Um, if you're wondering, I'm reading from the NIV. So I'm going to start verse 11 of chapter 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Again, right, they're thinking in the natural. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. There's a lot of emotion going on here. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, 
He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus, I am in awe of this account. I am so, so thankful that this account is in your word. I am so thankful, Lord, that we know this. God, would you speak to us this morning? Would you open up our hearts to receive all that you have for us from this? This is such an astonishing and beautiful story and reality of what you did. Jesus, we worship you and we ask that you would be dwelling right now in our midst with your people through the power of your spirit. Amen. So Jesus' claim, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me or and believes in me will never die. That alters our entire perspective of life. Entire perspective. Meaning, we don't just live for this life. It's not simply about what we accomplish on this earth. And whatever we seek to accomplish on this earth is done in light of this truth. And so, I, I, I grappled this week. Um, it was not easy to prepare. Not, not because there isn't incredible truth here, but because there's so much here to work through. And, and so I, I came down to basically going, how do we understand this claim within the context of the events? And so, not that it's all of it, but I want to I draw our attention to four realities that result from Jesus' claim here. And I'm not going to touch on everything. There's 
There's, there's a lot here. But the first one that I see as far as what does this mean, a reality for us out of this claim by Jesus is fear does not have to hold control over us. And again, I, I, as we're singing and worshiping this morning, I'm marveling about what we're singing about that we don't have to give in and we don't have to have fear control our lives. And I'm like, no, we don't. If Jesus holds the key to death and to the grave, Revelation 1.18 claims this, then sin, sickness, death does not control or need to keep us in some sort of perpetual worry or anxiety. Whatever happens on this earth, whatever happens, we don't have to worry. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 really gets at this, where Paul says there, and I mean, I know that probably many of us know this well, do not be anxious about anything, he says there, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, he says, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses or transcends all understanding, he says there, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So we don't have to accept and live with anxiety. We're told all the time we should. Now, yes, I, sometimes there's chemical imbalances that do need to be treated with medication. So I, absolutely, I'm not saying that. But do we adopt that practice that Philippians 4 speaks of in our lives to combat, combat sorry, fear and anxiety? Meaning, what I mean by being intentional with thanksgiving being intentional in prayer, being intentional with gratitude when we are feeling the inclination to anxiety, when we feel like I am beginning to feel anxious, do I go, I need to have thanksgiving and prayer at the forefront of my life? Meaning, creating time to be with God and seeking Him in being with His presence. And of course, anxiety is real. But so is the presence of Jesus. So is the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't miss the fact here in that account that we read that there was real fear in the disciples over this idea to go back to Jerusalem to see Lazarus. When Jesus said, we're going back to see him, the disciples were like, we're going to die. We're going to die. Jesus, do you not realize what happened there? I mean, it was, it was a really messy situation. Thomas was resolved to it when they left. And I find that so interesting, right? Because he's like, okay, let us go that we may die with him. Think about Thomas. He's gotten a bad rap in Scripture. You know what I think about Thomas? He was a man of principle. He was like, okay, we're going. We might die with Jesus, but we're going. Same thing. You know what? I don't believe Jesus that he rose from the dead until I see it with my own eyes. He was a man of principle. Now, in this... There was faith and commitment to Jesus, right? The disciples, they went. But for the disciples who, they did not understand yet the plan that God had for Jesus. They did not understand. We read all of it here in scripture and we see all the plan. They didn't know. There was this real possibility. They're heading into serious trouble. It was unsettling. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't grasp what Jesus himself already knew. Where is all this headed? It sounds familiar for us right now. 
And in the same way, in our lives, we choose how we respond. Do we allow fear to take hold? Or do we trust that Jesus is who he says he is? When we don't know what comes next. Second thing that we see here that we can, the reality that we see from Jesus' claim. We are called to faith, not cynicism. Verse 26, after he makes that claim, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll never die. He looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? Martha has a choice. But Lazarus is still dead. Lazarus is still dead. And she's going, she says it in the conversation, and where were you, Jesus? So this claim that Jesus makes calls us to faith because God doesn't operate on our timetable or our expectations. We can respond to this claim, Jesus being the resurrection of life, and we can actually respond and embrace this claim in a way that makes it all about us. Oh, he's the resurrection, he's the life, this is great. We can make this sort of this victorious proclamation over our lives, but we forget, and sometimes conveniently, to assess this context of how, what Jesus said here and when, how he said it. We have to consider why Jesus did what he did. Meaning he purposely delayed coming to see Lazarus after he heard of his sickness. He stayed for an additional two days in the region he was in. So there's a certain response to this that can actually cast Jesus in a really negative light. Why did he delay? Why would he purposely allow a family to experience suffering and grief? That's what he did. Both Mary and Martha mention his absence. They connect it to Jesus's passing, or to Jesus's, or sorry, to Lazarus's passing. They go, Jesus, you were absent. Where were you? So, we have the benefit of seeing the entire story and the entire outcome here laid out before us. Those who are in the middle of this experiencing the loss of Lazarus, they didn't. They were in the middle of this horrible situation. And when you begin to start to ponder and think through these events, you might find yourself actually, if you're honest, getting upset with Jesus. Especially if you begin to think, what if Jesus allowed this in my life? And we're quick to stuff down those thoughts. No, 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 Jesus wouldn't do that to me. But that's what Jesus did here. Jesus allowed suffering. And you can't ignore the fact that he claims and actually owns complete control throughout. He doesn't see this as an accident. From what we read, Jesus purposely allowed Lazarus to die. So to wrestle with this, to think critically through this is really crucial for us because the choice is paramount for the response of our hearts. See, some were cynical to Jesus in this. Verse 37, they said, oh, he healed the blind man. Why couldn't he raise Lazarus? There was cynicism around this. We, we choose how we respond in the midst of situations when Jesus is not meeting our expectations or we're really struggling. He did this for so-and-so. 
Why won't he do this for me? And we will either choose to respond in cynicism or with faith to Jesus. And the thing is, we, we might choose to respond in cynicism and all the attitudes it produces in our heart, and no one may know. We keep it hidden. We put on a good face. We look the part of a good Christian. We say the right things. But internally, we know we've actually embraced cynicism with Jesus. And that's horrible for our faith. John 9 We go back there and Jesus, he says that the man born blind was that way so that the work of God might be displayed. Here we see the same thing. Jesus, he says that what happened to Lazarus is for God's glory. So this is where we can see this extended to our lives and what we encounter and what we walk through. Anything bad or uncomfortable, we see as alien to our happiness and to our contentment. Like, just get it out of here. I don't want that. That is not the life that I signed up for. And, and what we do is we go, we, we have an attitude. we got to extinguish this uncomfortable feeling in my life at any cost. It's got to, I've got to get it out of here. At least for me, this is what I'm experiencing. I think a lot of us are experiencing right now. Is there injustice to the way that COVID is being handled? Yeah, sure seems like it. And then I go, but we've lived in a time of history with the greatest comfort, the greatest affluence, the greatest safety, the greatest wealth in the history of planet Earth, at least in the first world. We've never seen a better time than this. And we've been saturated alongside that with the message. It's all about me. It's all about my personal freedom, my personal happiness. And we've been force-fed that for decades. And we do not know how to handle adversity and suffering well. And this reality is now being played out in this mess with social media to boot. Add that all in to the equation and it's a hot mess because now you've got all sorts of responses and opinions flying a thousand miles an hour together and it's all being mixed in and people are like, I don't know what to believe. But, and the thing is, there's a common desire though amongst all the opinions. There is a common thread. We just want this to end. But what if Jesus is actually purposely, intentionally delaying because he has purpose in this for his church. Do we even consider this? And and, and what if we're missing it because we're so consumed with making this all about us? What, What if our motivation is just to get back to the hedonism, the pleasure of this culture where it's all about us. It's all about what we can experience. Is that what we really just want? Are we ignoring or or forgetting our mandate as disciples to reach the world around us and not seeing the incredible opportunity this is to live Jesus? But there is another choice rather other than cynicism. We can choose to trust and to choose to reject unbelief. Romans 4, 
speaks of Abraham there. And man, that would be like, you, we, could, we could get into Abraham with all this when we talk about trust, faith. But it says there in Romans about Abraham, it says, no unbelief, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced, underline that, fully convinced that God was able to do as he had promised. Faith and unwavering belief in the trustworthiness of God is a choice. We choose to believe and trust in the midst of what looks impossible, in the midst of deep pain, in the midst of grief, in the midst of the waiting, in the midst of Jesus maybe delaying. We choose to trust. Third reality we see from this claim is Jesus is not removed from your situations and circumstances. Jesus wept. He was deeply moved, it says here. The people said, see how he loved him. Jesus was emotionally invested and was personally involved with Lazarus. He expressed and experienced grief. But Jesus purposely delayed coming. So you go, how can he respond like this? He, he, he knew what he was doing. And even in that, he, Jesus says, I'm seeking Lazarus' good and the good of others. There was great purpose. Jesus knew what he was going to do, and yet the reality of death impacted him. When it says that Jesus was deeply moved, the Greek there, actually speaks of being moved to anger. It's not referring to sympathetic grief. It's not Jesus being sympathetic in that way. It's actually Jesus being moved to anger in a way. D.A. Carson, when he unpacks this, he says, it, Jesus was outraged in his spirit. Why? Because death is everything in it goes against God's plan for his creation. It goes against all of God's desire for people. Death was never, ever God's intention. And it's quite simple to believe, and Satan loves to plant this little seed in us, that God really isn't personally involved in my life, doesn't really care for me. Whatever happens in my life is just kind of all cosmic happenstance. It's just kind of, just happens. And, you know, I've, I've got it, and it's up to me. What I do, it's up to me. And this is alarmingly easy as professing Christians to allow that little seed in. When things don't go well, we struggle to understand what is happening, why is this happening. And it's the furthest thing from the truth when you read through Scripture and God's desire for his people. And this is, this, this is the core issue for us. Does God really care for me? Is God really for me? Will I trust him regardless? Or will I take matters into my own hands? See, the thing is, though, here is that Jesus isn't removed. He's right in the middle of every situation. He's not absent. He's not distant. 
And due to the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes right alongside us and encourages us to invite him into every situation that we encounter. I love this account because this is one of the rare stories provided in the Gospels to great length where we see Jesus' love for specific people. Not that he plays favorites, but revealing that Jesus deeply loved people. But you go, Jesus wasn't there. Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. Jesus allowed his family to suffer Paul, I'm really struggling with that. Why did he wait? Jesus, when when he first learned of Lazarus' death, he said that this sickness would not end in death, that God would be glorified through it. But he allowed him to die. And he could have, remember, he could have with a word healed Lazarus, but he didn't. He even told his disciples later, we read it, he says, I'm even for your sake, I'm actually glad that I wasn't there. What? He's like, so that you may believe. But why? We, we learn in verse 17 that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. This is really significant when we understand Jewish culture around death and burials. The first three days after death, were reserved for intense mourning where the souls left the body of the person who's died and people gathered to be with with the family. We see this in the text. The people are there around Mary and Martha. They're grieving with them, mourning with them. But by the fourth day, decomposition has set in and people who had come to support the family, they begin to disperse and go back to their homes. It It was very communal. And there's, there's this sense here, when you read the text, that Jesus purposely waited for death to have its full effect on Lazarus. Like, there was no doubt Lazarus was dead. I, I, uh, I asked a couple people this week who have experience with this, what it's like to encounter bodies that have been dead for four days. And it's not pretty. And I'm going to spare you the details. But decomposition has already set into varying degrees on a body that's four days, has died four days before. Extremities, like fingers, actually begin to shrivel and mummify. The face begins to cave in, amongst other things. Lazarus' body, yes, had been prepared for burial with spices, but first century burial was not like today's embalming. That's not what we're talking about. That, that, the spices that they put on Lazarus was more to deal with the smell. Decomposition had begun to some extent on Lazarus. Just think about that. And I, and I think we can begin to sympathize actually with Martha when Jesus says, open up the tomb. And she's like, but the smell. When you talk to those who have encountered and I, I talk to the people who have encountered dead bodies four days and on. They say, you never, ever forget the smell. Your, your memory in an instant brings it back. Jesus understood the incredible good that would come from this situation. Like, you think about the situation, you go, it was really 
really messy. It says later that many, because of this, because of this, many put their faith in Jesus. In fact, it was because of this that the Jewish leaders became seriously concerned about Jesus' growing popularity. And yet, and yet, Jesus was struggling with grief. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what he was going to accomplish, and yet he wasn't detached from the situation. This can provoke great faith in us. God may allow us to walk through difficult things, even delaying and changing the circumstances, but this doesn't mean that he is detached from us. That realization, that realization when internalized, when embraced, when held, God is for me, he's with me, regardless of the situation, that can alter and change your very life significantly. The fourth and final thing we realize from this claim, to know Jesus is to know resurrection and life. Jesus doesn't claim to have resurrection and life. He doesn't claim power over it. He claims he is the resurrection and life. He is the very embodiment of resurrection and life. I, I, don't, I don't know that we can understand the depth or the magnitude of this. I, I spent time, I spent significant time this week just meditating and pondering this as I prepared. I, I just, I felt like I have to sit with this because this is extraordinary. It is an extraordinary claim. And what does it really mean? And I think there's lots. I, like, I'm just scratching the surface. What it means, though, at the very least, is that all of our pain, all of our struggles, all of our shortcomings, all of the things we feel deeply, all of the dysfunction, all the history that we have, everything, all the ongoing character issues that we struggle with, does not have to define who we are in Christ. Jesus is resurrection and life, and he gives it to us. And it's not just some future far-off reality in the future. We will receive resurrection life. Amen. Yes. It's going to be amazing. We will not taste death. But resurrection life is for the here and now. And the implications of what Jesus did here are profound. In the triumph of Lazarus' resurrection, like, whoa, have you thought about like that? He was in a state of decomposition, and in an instant, Jesus spoke, and he was raised to life and came out perfectly fine. But in that, death still had to be defeated. Lazarus was still going to die again, physically. The raising of Lazarus actually was the thing that put the plans to kill Jesus into overdrive. This was the thing that was like, okay, the leader's like, now we've got to deal with this guy. So how can Jesus claim, I am the resurrection and the life? See, see Martha, she embraced the common Jewish understanding of resurrection, this, this far-off reality in the future 
when the Messiah would come and he would establish God's kingdom and he would take his people with him. That was their understanding of the resurrection. And I talked a little bit about this on Resurrection Sunday this year. Future, it's the future resurrection to a glorified body in the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. Yes, it's going to be incredible. But Jesus is revealing so much more here. He's saying, I have complete power over death. And Lazarus's resurrection here is ultimately pointing to Jesus' resurrection and, it, what, and what that offers to us. And that is new creation, spiritual transformation in the here and now. And this is what we need to, to grapple with and embrace. Life in Christ is new life. It's remarkably different. We are being changed. We are being transformed. We embrace the truth that we are crucified with Christ. We no longer live, as Paul says, but Christ lives in me. I live out of his power and in his power. And we live in this state of continual transformation. It's continual. And we realize as this is happening, we are living differently. We're living differently. Motives are changing. Desires are changing. Attitudes are changing. Minds are being transformed. I am living in a state that is different. So what typically controls and motivates people is not true of followers of Jesus. Meaning, we're not living simply for this life and its temporal pursuits. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about that. We're not living. We have an eternal perspective. All sorts of implications, right? Living for the kingdom, making disciples, being disciples, seeking to make disciples. We look at the world around us and we see, what do we see? We see living and breathing human beings. Yes, all around us. But we need spiritual eyes to see what Scripture says is actual reality. And that is that those apart from Christ are dead. Physically alive, yes, absolutely. But they're actually and in a perpetual state of decay, like all of us. Physically, we are in a perpetual state of decay. It's, but we're spirit, they're spiritually dead. I am not saying this to go, oh, let's, let's embrace some sense of superiority as, as followers of Jesus. No. We are saved by what? Sheer grace. Nothing of your own doing. It is the grace of God that saved you. What God, what God desires, this is all Ephesians 2, is that we would see our call to tell others in humility of their need for Jesus and his life. I was dead. I am alive with Christ. It's nothing of my doing. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. So this is why when Paul unpacks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10, and he warns him against being deluded into just living for this world and living for the riches of this world and living for the satisfaction of this world, living for the pursuit of almost everyone in Canada. He's, he's warning Timothy, and he says, don't be fixated and consumed by the things of this world, the pursuit of pleasure and things. They have to have their proper place. He says, we're going to be content in what we have he says, we need to reject and guard ourselves against desires for pleasure and wealth that will lead us away from Christ. He says, all sorts of things are to Timothy. He says, guard yourself against that. Guard yourself against 
riches. Rather, he says, we pursue godliness because it leads to contentment and great gain. Yeah, you say, but Paul, I great again, but I still struggle and battle with all sorts of temptations that do not feel like the new creation and feel like old patterns of behavior. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, you might say, like, is any of this really real? Or is this just some sort of spiritual ideal for just the select few that somehow some grasp, but I'm not really there. Okay, first, we're all there. Every single one of us, we're there. I'm with you. Second, we need to embrace and internalize what Jesus says. We need to internalize his word so that it changes and transforms us. It's powerful. Third, you need someone to walk with you and keep, you, keep pushing you to Christ. We all need accountability. We all need exhortation. We need to be discipled. This is a process, but we need others around us who will keep pushing us away from the deception of the world and rather keep pushing us into apprenticeship to Jesus and his way, his way, his way, his way, his way. And please hear me, this will not happen by default. You'll not just sort of slip in and find this. You will do this if you, you have to be intentional. After the remarkable events of Lazarus being raised from the dead, it says many people believed in Jesus. And the religious leaders, fearful of losing control, they said, look, they said the whole world is going after him. I, I, I love that phrase. They don't realize what they're prophetically saying there. The whole world is going after him. That's God's desire And that's the simple decision before every one of us. Will I go after Jesus? Will he be the highest pursuit in my life? Like Martha, Jesus asks every one of us, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this? So as we wrap up, I want to give you Four questions for application to live this out, to to put before the Lord from, from today. One, where does fear have a hold over me and my life? Two, is my inclination to faith or cynicism when difficult circumstances arise in my life? Three, do I believe Jesus is right in the middle of situations in my life and working for my good? And fourth, where do I need to know Jesus' resurrection and life in the here and now? Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are so faithful to your people. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you, Jesus, that you died. You suffered and died for us. 
You willingly embraced the cross so that we would have life in you. You willingly suffered so that we would know eternal life. And not just in the future, but now for our lives where we need transformation now. God, would you do all the work that you desire to do in us and through us? God, would you be intentional, help us to be intentional in pursuing you in your way. And Jesus, would you be glorified in all things. Help us where there's things we're walking through that we don't understand, situations that we're encountering, that we go, I don't know what to do. Jesus, help us to cling to you and know, know that you're right there with us. We thank you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen.